This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This is Red Box, the politics podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Before we begin, a plea. Now, obviously, Red Box has been in your podcast favourites for ages, but now everyone is trying to get in on the act. To help us up the made-up iTunes charts, give us a rating out of five and post a review telling us what you think of the state of politics at the moment. And if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. If you don't, please keep it to yourself. This week, we cover students, iPhones and malaria, which sounds like a hell of a freshers week. I'm joined by Times columnist Philip Collins, who wonders why more billionaires don't do good. Nicola Walcock, Times Education Correspondent, on the latest expensive Tory plan to win back the youth vote. But first, I had suggested we ban talk of Brexit for a week, so guess what Daniel Finkelstein wants to talk about. (laughs) Labour presents its Brexit policy as a hierarchy, so first they'll push for a general election, and then if they don't get that, they'll push for a referendum. But this is actually not a hierarchy. They're moving between two completely contradictory policies. I see what you're trying to do. You've tried to make out that this is about Labour, not about Brexit. So we'll we'll, we'll let we'll let this pass through my um, usual bat. So just explain. I mean, given that the leader can't, but you, if you could just try to explain where Labour is on on Brexit. If there was a deal, the Labour Party say they would vote against it in order to try to force a general election, and only in those circumstances, if they lost. Uh, forcing a general election, would they then move towards a so-called people's vote? They've never been quite clear what that people's vote might be. And they've suggested it's a sort of hierarchy of attempts to get democratic decision-making injected into the uh, Brexit uh, decision, as if we haven't had enough of that already. (laughs) Um, But actually, while they look as though they're moving smoothly from one policy to an even more democratic policy, they're really moving from a policy in a general election of continuing with Brexit to a different policy in a referendum of uh, to oppose Brexit. In other words, Labour would campaign in the general election uh, that they're trying to force in order for us to continue leaving. But if they managed to force a referendum, they'd campaign against us continuing to leave. So while these look like they're coherent uh, building blocks and a sort of hierarchy, and that's the way that uh, Emily Thornby presented them, in fact, they're an incoherent mess. Is it totally clear that Labour would campaign to stay in 
in well, that referendum. The reason they've adopted this odd position is because of this second referendum. They talk about having a people's vote. They say they'll campaign for it. But they've always been very, very unclear at the top about what that referendum would be about. And they've come up with this idea, haven't they, which is um, let's have two propositions, you know, no deal and Theresa May's deal, uh, both of which they oppose. Uh, so they'd be calling a referendum in order to oppose both options in it, which seems a bit weird. Uh, and they, can, they can't have that referendum, of course, unless the EU agrees to it because it involves delaying Brexit beyond March in order to have us give us time to do it. And it's impossible to imagine the EU agreeing to have a referendum in which Remain is not an option. So this second uh, stage is completely incoherent. And the reason this matters is that Joe Johnson, when he opposes any deal that Theresa May is proposing, is relying on being able to pass through the House of Commons some aspect of Labour's policy, presumably this uh, second referendum. And I'm not sure actually that he's going to to rely on them is a very good idea in these circumstances. I should say, because people know that I'm a Conservative, you know, this uh, started with the Conservative Party calling a referendum. The Conservative Party is deeply split on it. Conservative voters voted for it. And we're having this debate because it was a project of the right. So I don't want to be the chutzpah person who, who blames <laughs> this all on the Labour Party. But at this stage, you know, and so I do know, uh, but at this stage, certainly some more clarity from the Labour Party would be helpful. I think it would be incredibly welcome, wouldn't it, to have some really coherent opposition at this time when... The Tories are so split and there's, it's getting so close to the actual Brexit date. That's what's scary. Once Christmas is passed, we're going to be rampaging down the home straights, aren't we? And not only do we not have really a clue what's going to happen on the Tory point of view, but it's the one time when you would hope that somebody would stand up on the opposition side and say, this is our plan and this is what we're doing. And they seem, from my mind, just as divided. Phil, do you think we'd be clearer about what the government was doing if we had a clearer opposition? Because in part, the government is able to be all over the place because the opposition doesn't have a clear line either. No, not really, because I think the lack of clarity comes from the facts, not from the political positions that are struck upon them. I think it is some of these questions are irre- completely unresolvable. The Irish question does not have an answer. The only thing you can do is to stop asking it and to think about something else uh, and fudge it and just and forget about it and pretend that you've answered it and give an answer that which which just about doesn't quite satisfy everybody there is no answer so i don't think clarity would suddenly be forced upon a government by a better opposition actually up until this point labor's studied murkiness on europe has served it very well served it well in the election where absolutely nobody had the first idea what Labour's policy on Europe was and that is a very good thing to go into an election with because it allowed Labour to hold together a coalition of people who wanted to reverse the referendum and those who'd voted for it who were Labour supporters. Now obviously as you get closer to the wire that is an irresponsible position to to keep and and I agree with both Danny and Nicola that Labour's position it does embody a contradiction. However in a way so what? We can be pure about that but so what? It's not their problem in the end. And if they, it's perfectly reasonable for an opposition to try and seek a general election and they're going to try and get one. The answer to the question, so I remember in the debate about nuclear arms, seeing this cartoon with two people walking down a road and a, and a cruise missile is about to land in the next door street. Mm. And the caption as the two of them walked along is, was, come along, dear, don't let's get involved. Right? <laughs> so the, the, the truth is they live in this country, so they have to get involved at some point. And to be stuck in a position where they can't decide at this stage whether they wish Brexit to go ahead and do not go ahead, you know, is not a particularly good between the leader and the rest of the party. Is obviously n- well, they're very going to vote against the deal, aren't they? That is a very clear statement of intent that they think this deal is not 
good for the country and, and in all probability they'll vote against it, I'd imagine. I think it would be a lot clearer and a lot easier for people to plan if they knew whether Labour was ultimately going to support a second referendum with Remain as an option. And I think that would make it clearer for people who were planning to vote on the deal uh, what the consequences would be. Of course be. it would, but then that would make the prospect of a general election, which is vanishingly small anyway, zero. No, so Labour's not going to reveal themselves to the Conservative MPs and help them make up their mind to be loyal to their own government. Isn't it? Because what Labour is trapped in is actually a massive lie. It's a Remain party pretending that it supports Brexit. No, because it's led by a Brexiteer. You know, I, I do I do think... Is he um, really a Brexiteer? Yes, I do think so. I think that although Jeremy Corbyn uh, uh, has decided to sort of give himself up to the party, you cannot take... the. F- he's taken a fundamental mm. position on Europe for... A, his entire career, which is that it's anti—that's an anti-democratic capitalist club uh, that's allied with uh, the Atlantic Alliance and capitalism, you know, th- and that was why he didn't campaign in the European referendum, and why he now is doing all that he can to keep hold of the party, given where his base is in momentum, whilst not supporting a, a, a second re- referendum. Do you think he secretly hopes it sneaks through and that gets him off the hook? He knows he's not going to get a general election, doesn't he, surely? Unless we've well, got as a general chaos. rule, when oppositions call for something, it's because they know it's not going to happen. It's like calling for someone to resign. Mm. Yeah. As soon as the opposition calls for cabinet ministers to go, they're safe, as a general rule. He's still quite resolute in what he says about <coughs> Brexit going ahead, isn't he? His interview with oh, the Spiegel was, um, was yes. very clear. I mean, entirely contradicted Keir Starmer and Emily yeah, Thornberry. Yeah, I, but exactly. I the fact that they're sort of saying they're not contradicting each other, but they clearly are, but nobody's explaining how it's not a contradiction. Is Within he, 24 hours to say... I mean, maybe, maybe the public have noticed. I mean, they are going down in the opinion polls. They are even in in the midst of political chaos. Labour is only polling thirty seven percent. Maybe some, maybe maybe that's partly the reason that mm. people recognise this is a. There is something absolutely astonishing about the polls, that given the total, well, total mess that you, the government seems yes. to be in, do you think the it Tories is that, are still ahead? Do you think that it's just that people have switched off from it? I think the, there are, yeah, I, and I think what well, I think there are a number of reasons. One, they're quite our listeners have it. I don't one, mind. One, one of the things we had a piece in Red Box this week from Matt Smith at YouGov, and he'd gone back and they'd looked at. They asked lots and lots of questions about what do you think will happen after Brexit if it's a good deal, if it, if it's a bad deal. And the most amazing thing is that public opinion hasn't changed at all on Remainers or Leavers. They are still as diametrically opposed. You know, Leavers think their wages are going to go up. Remainers think their wages are going to go down. Mm-hmm. Food prices, you know, house prices, all that stuff. Um, there has been no move and part of me thinks well it's because you're right they're tuning out but at some point when this week comes to a head maybe they'll tune back in the other reason why labor is behind in the polls is because real incomes are going up and people are not fixated with uh, which they were not in the general election in the general election they were going down and people are not fixated with brexit the assumption that the government is in a terrible mess is one that you reach when you pay any attention but most people don't (laughs) the conservative party could avoid all this um, anxiety about the labor party very easily though couldn't it the conservative party could simply decide to rally around its prime minister and vote through this um scheme it's foisted on the nation we could just do, do that. Ju- I mean, it's a bit early to be drunk, Phil. This sort of uh, <laughs> well, radical idea of the Tory party uniting around I mean, its leader. It's just a thought. They don't need to rely on Emily Thornberry agreeing with Keir Starmer or with Jeremy Corbyn or, or any of this. Well, they can simply, they're the government. My feeling is if the, you know, people who supported Brexit are not willing to make a good faith effort to implement it because they're after some deal that's completely unnegotiable. It's a bit of a cheat to expect the rest of us to have to vote it through. Uh, and um, It is a bit uh, of a know, cheat. It's I, one I, I, thing I, I, for yes. Joe Johnson, who's always opposed Brexit, to take the position he does, but quite another for his brother, who supports 
supports Brexit, but somehow seems to think that when the deal is done, Joe Johnson and I should be supporting yep. and voting it through while he votes against sure, it. I agree. I don't, of course, it's a bit of a cheek, and I understand the frustration uh, of that of being in that position. And yet, you're still confronted with the fact that you're running the risk if this thing doesn't go through Correct. that we head out of the European Union with no deal. And the, at some point, the responsible people have to be responsible. And I think they may yet still be responsible. And so as frustrating as that is to deal with these people, nevertheless, you still will be confronted with this decision. Do I vote for this imperfect deal or do I take the risk of leaving with no deal in the hope that I get something better? Do you think there's a group of that sort of such people in the Labour Party? In other words, that there are uh, some people in the Labour Party who want a second referendum, uh, who don't think this deal is better than being in the European Union, but who ultimately do think a deal is better than having no deal, and who, once the prospect of either a general election or a second referendum is gone, might then vote with Theresa May. Yeah, I'm not sure there are many in the complete overlap you said, but I do think there are some who don't particularly want a second referendum and who don't particularly like the deal, who didn't want to leave the European Union, but who will vote for a deal in order to avoid the prospect of no deal. I'm not sure there are that many, uh, but I do think there are some. So if the rebellion on the Tory side can be contained then it may be it passes with Labour vote. Well, I've got a horrible feeling that we'll end up returning to this probably next week because it feels like we're duty-bound to. But let's move on and talk about something in the real world. This is Nicola Walcott. Last week, the Times had a very interesting story which got a lot of traction and follow-up about possible plans for Tories to cut the university tuition fees to 6500 Now, this sounds like good news for students, good news for their parents who wants their children racking up huge amounts of debt at university. That appears to be the thinking of the party leaders who may hope this appeals to voters. But universities argue very strongly that the losers are likely to be social mobility and the quality of higher education itself. Nicola, what was so surprising about your story was that I thought the Tories had sort of slightly put this to bed. They tried throwing money at the tuition fees problem. It hadn't really got them anywhere. They made a very expensive announcement at Tory party conference last year and almost nobody noticed. Yes. So it, they seem to. it's like they have to keep going back yes. and picking this scam. Yes, and, it's, exactly. They just seem to keep returning to it. And when you think about how much money and effort and energy went into trebling the fees in the first place in 2012, the anxiety over that, the uproar, when all that is said and done and is now starting to bed in and settle down, people are starting to see the benefits of that system. And now to bring it up again, obviously people who are more political than I am will know more about the thinking possibly behind whether this is connected with Jeremy Corbyn's pre-election pledge in the manifesto to scrap tuition fees but my sources did tell me that there was certainly a sense from number 10 that they wanted to have something if not to match that then to go some way to having something to offer the electorate. Isn't the problem or at least the argument about going from 9,000 to 6,000 is it the only people who pay that extra three if you like back in the, over time yes are the most it's the most well-off students most well-off families who would probably pay the full whack because if you graduate and then you if, end up in a job which you don't earn enough yes. to end up paying it back so yeah, you the don't threshold pay back is twenty five thousand yeah. pounds and so if you don't ever earn more than twenty five thousand pounds you won't pay back a penny it's written off after 30 years so changing the system to six and a half thousand pounds actually benefits the better off graduates who probably would have paid more under the £9,000 system, but it won't really do anything to benefit those from 
poorer backgrounds or who don't go on to get very well-paid jobs. Sort of give me a fiver of politics, and it's, yeah. I'm afraid it is quite effective. And the Conservative Party, I am strongly a believer in the tuition fee system. I think it was the right thing to do. I think it, I'm in favour of very broad university access, and charging it in this way comes with it. Uh, there are questions over the interest rate. I think there are bigger questions over whether or not the system has forced universities to, inc- to improve their quality, and that is something that I think the Conservative Party should be investing a lot of time in, how to force universities to give people value for their money at this very large rate. But you have to be pragmatic. So first of all, you you say that it gives the the £3,500 effectively to the better off people and probably those people are the most likely to vote conservative uh, so you know again look at it in a ruthless political sense and here i'm not looking at it as a, in a policy sense approving or disapproving i'm just talking about the politics pure and simple you can exactly see why this policy would be effective with those people even though of course it will not be as effective as planning to abolish it altogether which i think is very effective uh, politically even if unaffordable and mad it's obvious why they're thinking of doing it it's not just uh, you know people who think that the better off students won't suffer are very short-sighted because universities the quality of what they can offer would suffer there would be less funding okay there'd be less funding for widening participation bringing in disadvantaged students that's all well and good but vice chancellors i spoke to were also saying we'd end up with courses closing larger class sizes, fewer resources, fewer able to offer expensive science and technology and maths courses, which are obviously what the economy and what the government wants. So all round, you would end up with poorer quality across the board. It's not that surprising, though, is it, that vice-chancellors would say, no, we don't want our funding cut by third? Of course it's not. (laughs) They don't want it. Wouldn't the Treasury... For, for whom this may not actually cost that much because they're not going to actually raise much of this money back, uh, simply give them money out of the putative non-gains, as it were. Uh, so that yeah. in, the end, in the end, what you get is a system which I think uh, is less uh, preferable, which is government funding uh, universities rather than it following consumers completely. But but we've been moving away from that, haven't we? No, 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 I'm, in fav- with, yeah, I'm not in favour of that. We've I'm been just moving away from government funding because universities, again, you say, yes, they say, we don't want to lose money. Well, yeah, who can blame <laughs> them? But also, the trebling of tuition fees was, was such a massive deal across the board for everybody to get their head round. So far, it really has... Its effects are still being felt, still filtering through. The Office for Students, which was introduced last April, is putting a lot of pressure on universities to use a a chunk of that tuition fee income to improve the university experience across the board. To then put that in jeopardy, you say that the Treasury would make up the difference. Well, the the fear of universities is that that wouldn't be guaranteed in the long run. And and once the you next put, time there's pressure yeah. for the no, NHS or yeah. whatever, then there's yeah. 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 no, no, no. politics. Yeah. Of course, yeah, yeah. of course, it's I a classic it. case where, as a, yeah. as a journalist, writer, or a policy person, you think I'm de- very definitely against this, but you'd probably do it yourself yeah. if mm. you were there in, in politics. I can absolutely understand yeah. why they've done it. I, I deplore it. But I think Danny made a very important point about the universities not responding particularly well to the gift of a trebling of yes. uh, tuition fees. I It'd don't think their course is altered particularly, no. did they? And that's absolutely crucial. If you're going to introduce a kind of social market into the financing of university education, which I'm completely in favour of, then you have to respond to that. You have, yes. to, you have to change. And they didn't particularly. They just saw it as the necessary retrieval yes. of underfunding. And there has been you know, a lot they could have done better. I mean, we've seen the huge hike in vice-chancellor salaries, mm. above 400 grand, not uncommon just you know ratcheting up and then obviously the strikes 
um, last year by lecturers over pensions. And both those could have been handled a lot better and a lot quicker. But universities haven't been quick enough to see themselves as and of, answerable. And of course, it's important to, in, in the context because it's very important to get back to Brexit. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and this is falling in the context of universities yes. worried about um, students coming from overseas, which provide yeah. a, a very substantial component of their balance sheet. So yeah. the, at, that, at this particular moment, they're especially sensitive to a reduction in their income. Yes, and they do punch above their weight worldwide and attract a huge amount, a huge amount of students from overseas. I mean, I think Matthew Lynn writing The Telegraph today reminded us uh, 442,000 foreign students in the UK, a third of those from China, adding 25 billion a year to British GDP once fees and living costs are added. So any dilution of the quality, word would soon get around. When tuition fees were trebles, and I remember, in fact, it was this time of the year, wasn't it? It was all the nights mm. were drawing in and there was effigies of Nick Clegg being put yes. on every street corner. Yep. There, there was talk of it being up to 9,000. and It was all going to be open to the market. Oh, and yes. you would, and then it, amazingly, it turned out no university wanted to advertise themselves. I'm knocked no. down cheapo. I think there was one. Was there was there? one in Leeds that offered one a couple of courses a 6,000 and, and then soon yeah. realised that was... That I mean, was, the idea was mm. that, that uh, you might get a, a people offering correspondence courses with mm. exams offered by other universities, which actually, by the way, you know, my fa- that's why my father gained his degree in originally. So I think that was the idea, in it, and I think we need to push and explore why that hasn't happened, really, because yes. it would be obviously brilliant if there was more choice of university options and I, and I you know there's a vast difference between the teaching quality in different university institutions mm. a market ought to reflect that in different prices or reflect yes. it in something but it doesn't I think there was a lot of anger in government that universities did just universally float to the top yeah it's not um, created a market it's no. just it's just uh, filled a hole in exactly funding. and I think it was only a year ago that universities assumed they'd be able to put their fees up to nine and a half grand this year and we're talking about well actually 12,000 is the cost another really important point I think to make is that the biggest impact on students purses um, and and things which are causing massive anger and and something which people could do something about are the maintenance grants were scrapped across the board. I think it was two years ago. So even the poorest students now have to have a maintenance loan. A lot of the time, even the maintenance loan that's given doesn't fulfil the the actual cost of living. So people have to rely on their parents and not necessarily have parents in that position. The other thing causing a lot of anger is the interest rate on the tuition fees, which I think for the highest earners is now 6.3%. And there's, again, pushing across the board for that to be reduced. But obviously it's like anything. And if we want to live at a certain standard, we'll all somehow have to pay for all these things. You know, Mm -hmm. we've, the Times are on a disturbing series of uh, reports, you know, each of which properly sourced and true about the problems of extreme poverty and each of those things you want to address with financial solutions, what I would want to address with financial solutions, this is another example where you don't want people to be paying a lot of money for but the problem is we don't have money to pay for all these things and actually i find that is is obviously the essence of politics it's heartbreaking it's a shame we've got into an auction on university education because that's exactly where we shouldn't be spending the marginal 11 billion pounds no that is not a good use of public money to put it into what is essentially a subsidy to the middle class we'll talk about it in the coming weeks with the series that danny was talking about that rachel vester and alice thompson did was extraordinary Mm. and absolutely compelling reading about what's happening out in the real world while everyone is fussing over what Jacob East Mogg thinks about the backstop to the backstop. Mm. But we will come back to it. I also like to congratulate you all for we've t- spoken about tuition fees for ten minutes and nobody's mentioned the Lib Dems. 
It's almost like we forgot they. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you mentioned Clegg. So you, you know, I did, I mentioned Nick Clegg. We'll yes. cut that out, we'll cut that out. <laughs> um, in a moment, we're going to talk about what billionaires are doing, but we'll be back out of this short break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. This is the Red Box Politics Podcast on the Times. I'm joined in the studio by Daniel Finkstein, Nicola Wilcock, and this is Philip Collins. There is apparently a new phone or something. Some dreary new gizmo that will do things you don't need. This is the legacy of Steve Jobs, a man of no lasting consequence. Meanwhile, Bill Gates is showing how wealth and corporate ingenuity can completely change the world. Where to start, Phil? On the iPhone is of no lasting consequence. No, it's a phone. (laughs) It's more than a phone, isn't it? It's a phone with an email on. Okay. It's not very... Yeah. That's that's it. That's that's the full extent of what I have to say about this phone. What the, what is the new phone? Is it the X? I don't know. XS. I got, I, they send me emails. Da- Danny sends me no, emails on about the, an iPad. A new oh. iPad. A new well, iPad. I did, I did say a new, a new phone, phone or something. something. <laughs> <laughs> I covered that. You just saw it from a distance. There was a new. Phone. There has been a new phone not that long ago. But there's this. always a new phone. This is a this is a perennial. Thing. <laughs> I could do this script any week. He blames all computing on me. I think. I, I do. You early on in your career, you you work for a computer magazine, and from then on, I've, I've never let yes. you forget it. Yeah. So we'll part the iPhone. Steve Jobs done nothing. Yeah. What is it that Bill Gates has done? Well, I mean, the point be, behind this is not just for me to be annoyed at phones, although that's kind of, it's sort of important. Um, <laughs> it's that I actually regard Bill Gates as a, a hero who might become one of the great people of the 21st century, because what Bill Gates is doing with his money is changing lives totally in Africa. I mean, his Some of his work uh, on attempts to eradicate malaria and polio, for example, is astonishing. There's the level of his commitment financially but also personally but in particular the method and application of his um, arithmetical and and scientific procedures to the eradication of problems is really extraordinary and the progress they're making is is immense 
and he may well eradicate some major diseases in sub-Saharan Africa within our lifetime, which is an astonishing thing for someone to have done with their corporate wealth. And this is a, there's lots of examples of 19th century Americans, Carnegie's and Rockefeller's, doing great things with their surplus returns. And Bill Gates, to his great credit, and Warren Buffett, who deserves honorable mention, is in that honorable tradition. And that contrasts with lots of people. And this is an era in which you can become ridiculously wealthy for doing essentially nothing. And it's the first time ever, by which I mean, I, I don't, I mean, Steve Jobs is an entrepreneur, so I don't, I'm not denigrating him in that sentence. I mean that there are people who, in financial services, who are just employees, taking no entrepreneurial risk, with no great creative ingenuity, are immensely wealthy, beyond the dreams of avarice. And that congealed wealth could do immense good in the world, and Bill Gates is demonstrating that. I looked up because you were talking about you know the amount of money that is donated in 2016 donations worth more than a million pounds in the UK totaled 1.83 billion in America 2.83 billion pounds in America it was 270 billion so even allowing for the fact that obviously are more Americans by my maths and this might be wrong it's about 27 pounds per person in the UK and 800 pounds per person in the US what do you think is behind that well the, the classic explanation for that is that in the book by Frank Prochaska is is the welfare state the absence of a welfare state in America has led to an increased role for philanthropic giving so that's usually the explanation for why those traditions were different i don't i'm not sure I entirely by that but that's one possible thing You've also got a lot wealthier people, a lot more successful uh, entrepreneurial class in America. But nevertheless, it's something we should encourage. In Britain now, we have got more... Our wealth inequalities are enormous. Our income inequalities have been stable for 30 years. Mm -hmm. But wealth inequalities are vast now. And there's an awful lot of idle assets. And that money could be put to really good use. With universities, there's certainly a massive difference in the UK and the US with the philanthropic giving... And UK universities have got whole teams now set up to try and encourage this legacy of once you graduate, even when you're earning peanuts, you donate a little bit yeah. each month. And because yeah, the American universities, of course, they exact quite a heavy price, though, yeah. don't they? Because you actually buy places for for the dull offspring of yes. um, of givers. This is true. In, yes. uh, in, <laughs> Ivy League universities are an absolute racket. I mean, I know that I. I basically agree with the Phil's thrust and even his caustic wit about the phone. Obviously, uh, you know, truthfully, it has uh, Steve Jobs was was a very very innovative entrepreneur, and he did create a new market, effectively the market of the mobile device that had various different smart options on it, and that's changed reading and communications, all sorts of things that it's done, and and has been very important in the development of social media, the smartphone. So it has been profoundly consequential. But I, but first of all, it's odd that Steve Jobs was sort of seen as the kind of great, heroic, lovely guy, when actually every piece of evidence was that he was horrible to almost everybody who worked for him and, and even his own family. Uh, and that Bill Gates has never received quite the kind of um, the, the, the public praise and the sort of you know uh, adulation effectively that his behavior deserves and not only because he himself has been an incredibly important entrepreneur and in the creation of windows and other things Mm. uh, you know certainly at least jobs equals possibly more more, possibly more so i think there's an argument on both on both grounds because some people question how significant 
Bill Gates's contribution of DOS and all that really was. But okay, but nevertheless, I certainly think that Charles Dean knew about it. Yeah. <laughs> you can see why I blame him now. Yeah. That might be the first time we've ever had DOS mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you think it's also partly the, the, the sort of just the public perception of the two men and their products and their businesses? Is that Apple is all sort of yes. Yes. sexy Ooh. and shiny exactly. and turtlenecks yeah. and all that sort of stuff? Jobs so is well, no, it's, yeah. a, it's a profound change. It's a difference of philosophy. So Bill Gates has made his money and also development in computing on an open platform so that lots of people could plug into it. That means why it's spread all around the world. But that means you can't control what you produce. And Steve Jobs was a control freak and he created a closed system. And the closed systems have all sorts of problems, both economically, as he discovered by you know driving Apple into the ground once before making it successful, but also when you use it. Um, and there's a lot to be said for Bill Gates as a pioneer of open systems, actually. I mean, there's a good point you make about the adulation that Jobs receives, which I find remarkable. I mean, Walter Isaacson has written biographies of Leonardo da Vinci, Albert Einstein and Steve Jobs. I mean, that's just not the company this guy should be keeping. He is into the bargain. The worst renowned public speaker in the history of the world. His commencement address is American University. Have you seen Chris Grayling speak? Chris Grayling is Demosthenes (laughs) for this moron. Well, that's interesting. I went to a... I was at... Dinner with um, Steve Jobs. He was. He was. He was. Came away with a bag of foes. He was actually incredibly compelling, but also uh, managed to insult at least a third of the audience <laughs> uh, to such a point that the next day, you know, someone had to apologise to him. The point about his closed system is that it's in this way he's slightly comparable to Walt Disney. He was trying to create a sort of world, and there's a, and it's very compelling the world that he creates, and uh, the control means it can be beautiful and self-contained. Well, that was a lot um, about it. Wasn't it the design? Um, the design of the first brilliant. IMAX. You know, it was all it was but, all down to that. But it's the substance underneath yeah, it. That, but possibly, you know. Yeah. But I am ideologically, I'm much more for open systems, and so are you, which is mm. why you're more attracted to Gates. But that's before you even move on to the question of exactly. their charitable. Yes. Even on the terrain of computers, Gates is the man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Never, you forget all your malaria, malaria nonsense. <laughs> exactly. But getting back to the, the uh, philanthropy, obviously, in the Victorian times we had massive philanthropists, not just in America, but here. So what what's changed? I mean, you you say the welfare system but there doesn't seem to be that great culture anymore there's a, a university yes, in hereford that, a new right. engineering university right. and they're looking for a big philanthropist they, they're going to name I, themselves after them i think what happened was a change plans. in the conception of the company yeah. so the philanthropists you've probably got in mind are the sort of chocolate philanthropists mm. of the of, you know the, the cadbury's and, and, and yeah. you know and bourneville and uh, and all of that the, the quakers and they had a conception of a company as a part of the society in which which in which it was hosted and, and that idea of the joint stock company changed in the late 19th century and into mm. the 20th century. But it's also about the diminishing utility of money, right? So if you've got a few people who are extremely wealthy, at the top end of their wealth, right, if you've got £100 billion, a million pounds is less consequential to you than you've got £10 million, and giving it away doesn't mean so much to you. One of the reasons why lots of there are big philanthropists in America is there are a lot more extremely rich people. And when, you've got, when you're extremely rich, um, you're more likely to give. However, of course, it is notable, and one should pay attention to this, that ri- richer people proportionally tend to give less uh, than poorer people. That's mm. a very disturbing aspect of philanthropy. So it's partly about culture as well. Mm. Can, can I tell you a joke about Rockefeller? Okay. Yeah, well, this, a, this seems like a good way to end. Exactly, it's two Ronnie's joke. And um, Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett sit in the garden and Ronnie Corbett says, if I was as rich as Rockefeller, I'd be richer than Rockefeller. 
And Ronnie Barker says, how do you make that out? He says, I'll do a bit of window cleaning on the side. <laughs> <laughs> I think it should be a new thing. We always finish on a joke. Yeah. Um, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this week. Before we wrap up, a reminder to post a review on iTunes. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, or whatever fax machine, or whatever it is that you get your podcasts from every week. But for now, from Daniel Finkelstein, Nicola Walcott, Philip Collins, and me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.